0: All right, everybody, thank you all for coming to the Unusual Whale CPI space. Got a great panel here, as always. So I'm going to go ahead and run down some intros to some of our panelists here. And when we get the space going, everybody on the panel, feel free to chime in wherever. The only request that I have is that when somebody's speaking, please keep mics muted. Sometimes we end up getting a little feedback there. So without further ado, I'll jump right into it with our panelists. The Jam Croissant himself, Jam Carson, volatility expert, founder of Kai Volatility, which everyone should be subscribed to. He's an incredibly passionate educator in the options, vol, and flow space, as well as one of the best traders in it. Welcome, Jam. How are you doing this morning?
1: Good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh this one feels bigger than the other ones for some reason. Happy to be here. Uh if anybody ever wants to check out uh what we've been putting out recently, kybolatility.com backslash news.
0: Good deal, man. Thanks for coming. As always, next we've got Joey Politano. Joey is taking up FinTwit world by storm with a big jump writing his newsletter taking the leap to full time once again congratulations it's a must read and we're honored to have you again we'll double back to my man joey up next we got cuppy also known as harris cupperman is founder of praetorian capital chairman of mongolia growth group and an all-around adventure at adventures in capitalism happy to have his expertise here how you doing cuppy
2: doing great i think this is gonna be a big one Uh, i think it's gonna be wild i'm excited
0: I'm here for it, man. I'm glad to have you here giving that input. Absolutely. Up next, we've got Fed Guy 12, Joseph Wang, a regular appearance here on the Unusual Whale Spaces, a friend of Unusual Whales. We welcome back Joseph Wang. He headed trading at the Fed's open desk, has an incredible book called Central Banking 101, and is the go to guy to speak about the Fed's operations. How are you doing this morning, Joseph?
3: Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for inviting me. I love these spaces. It's great to be here and to be among such great panelists.
0: Great to have you as always. And last but not least, Tony Greer is a first-time panelist on our spaces today. He's an editor of Morning Navigator, which is part of his business, TG Macro. He managed risk for Golden Sachs Commodities Index and much more. Welcome, Tony.
4: Great to be here, Nick. What a great crew. I'm honored to be part of this. I can't wait to hear what everybody has to say about the markets.
0: Likewise, man. I'm really excited for this. So just kind of let's spin right into it. Why don't we? So the very first question I have for the panel, I want to give a quick overview. We'll talk about You know multiple things today, and we'll kind of dive into each topic a little bit. But since we last spoke, the BOJ intervened in their FX markets. The Bank of England intervened in their GLIT market. PPI increased 0.4% in September month over month at 8.5%, which is higher than expected. The Ukraine war is prolonging. OPEC has just decided a huge rate cut and all of that is just last week. So this is just within the last week. We've got all this going on. So what is the Fed looking at here? What are what is the Fed thinking about? Does it matter to them given their mandates? Jim, can you start us off here?
1: Yeah, we're we're definitely um, reaching a point where, you know, the Fed has got to be thinking that uh, you know it's time, given the lag that exists, to kind of stop and pause. Um, uh, it doesn't mean they're going to do it yet. And why aren't they going to do it yet? Uh, because they know the second they do that this market's going, everybody's going to yell pivot. The market's going to rally. Things are, you know, and they, they really don't want this market uh, 10%, 20% higher. Um, so I really think, you know, there's there's a little bit of a a, a communication uh, challenge ahead of the Fed there. Uh, You know, they 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 don't want to wait too long, uh, but they don't want to do it too soon. And the way they say it has got to be just right. So I I think there are conversations going on at the Fed and based on the muddiness of some of the the uh, what we heard from the Fed, uh, you know, I I think we're starting to see that. So I think there's an increasing put in the market. That doesn't mean that we are uh, that they're going to to pivot or, or, you know, and to be clear, we're talking about a pause, right? it will be made out to be something much more than it is. But uh, that's why the CPI report is so important. Because if it gives them justification to, to take a second and look around, uh, they, they are going to probably take uh, take it. I would like to add to that that you know, it's important to note that this is the last um, CPI before the election and the, the Fed meeting on November 2nd is six days before the midterm election. The Fed does not want to be too involved uh, in, in what's going on with the midterm. They, they want to be uh, you know, not perceived at least as being involved. Um, so I think that's an important thing to note as well. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Let the other panelists jump in.
0: That's fair. Thank you, Jim. So Jim just said that you know, the Fed doesn't want the market higher. Tony, you've been a pretty outspoken critic of the Fed on Twitter. What are your thoughts here generally? Why would it be that the Fed doesn't want the market higher?
4: Uh, The only thing I can think of is that they're going to take a serious um, stance on the inflation that we're seeing, you know, and and continue raising rates right into what what looks like we're probably going to get some weaker economic data. You know, I would imagine that that could be, um, you know, something that, you know, lends them to try to track down their, you know, their goal of fighting inflation and, and probably send stocks, you know, even even lower from here. Um, I, you know, I don't. I try not to, you know, get too Fed obsessed and, and just really react to the markets. That's that's really a, a, I'm much better at that um, than I am trying to predict or, um, you know, decide what the market's going to do way ahead of time. So I just wanted to state that, if that's fair
0: yeah i'd say that's fair so kind of going forward on the same line of thinking cuppy you agreed to this stating that the fed has little to no power to control price inflation and that the fed's rate hikes could make inflation worse by deterring new investment in energy production at a time when the world is facing an energy shortage how do you see this commodity situation
2: well i mean uh i think commodities bottomed this summer they had an epic move for a year they pulled back uh you know, they consolidated, and oil is starting to break out again. Uh, other commodities are starting to catch a bid. I think the Fed uh, can't they, – they, they have very little say in what happens in global commodities. You remember the words global. And I don't think they can uh, catch inflation because so much of inflation is driven by oil. I think that, uh, you know, Fed funds are in the threes. Inflation is, is in the eights. If they were to pause right now, uh, even if inflation pulls back to seven – I think the 30-year just completely collapses. I mean, look at gilts. Uh, no one wants to own something with negative five yields. So uh, I think they're in a really terrible spot, um, partly of their own, well, mostly of their own making. But they, they, they're basically being forced to chase oil around on the screen, and oil's going higher. So they're, they're stuck.
0: <laughs> it's, it's, it's a mess. Fair enough. Thank you, Cuppy. I'm sorry, my mic cut out there, my bad. Joseph, Tony just mentioned the glit market and you said the tail risks of QT have first appeared on the gilt market where significant price volatility prompted official intervention. What appears to be a liquidity issue will ultimately become a financial stability issue as investors discover their quote unquote safe assets are not indeed safe. How are you seeing liquidity, Joseph?
3: Hey, so I think what I what I'm trying to say is that So there's a limit as to how high yields would go because the way the financial system works is that everyone holds these sovereign uh, liabilities, sovereign debt, so here it's treasuries and in the it's guilds, and then in other countries it's bonds and so forth. So everyone holds these as their safe assets. And part of it is because regulation forces a lot of um, financial sector entities like banks and pensions funds and um, government sponsored enterprises to invest in these things. And when you have um, treasury yields or sovereign bond yields going higher, what's also happening is that the market value of these assets are declining. So eventually you get to a point where um, some somebody somewhere who is levered, because these guys are always levered, um, the financial system itself from banks to pension funds, they are, they're always levered. You get to a point where um, your asset values decline enough that you have some solvency issues. And you saw that happen um in the in the uk so there's a report from the bank of england to the uk parliament noting that basically there were some ldi strap pools that were on the brink of insolvency because of higher guilt yields and if they were ever to go insolvent what they would have to do is they would have to puke out all their assets to make margin calls which basically creates fire cell dynamics means more people have to puke and that's a financial stability concern so there there's a there's a limit as to how high longer-term years go, and if we ever breach that limit, where there would be financial stability concerns, what we're likely to see is official intervention, which is what we saw in the UK. Um, I think of it as basically pumping up their yield prices, increasing the asset values of um, of the investor community, thus making them solvent again. Um, also, I, I addressed your earlier point, Nick, about what's happening throughout the world. So, the Fed, if you listen to them, has been kind of noting that there are spillovers of policy. Uh, the US dollar obviously is used throughout the world. So, if you have a strong US dollar, that impacts the solvency of entities outside of the country. For example, if you're a Mexican company who borrowed in dollars, now your dollar liabilities are worth more. So, you owe more debt, and maybe you, that impacts your solvency. All this stuff kind of has some impact on Fed policy, but not a whole lot. First and foremost, it's about the US, and the Fed has already laid out their plan clearly of what they're going to do. They're going to raise to four, four and a half, and keep it there for a year. Uh, none of that stop-go stuff they did in the 70s, as Jim was alluding to. That was uh, as perceived today to be a big policy
0: Really great points, as always, Joseph. Thank you so much. So, Joey, now that we got you back up here, hopefully issue-free, but we all know how Twitter spaces be. So, with the market meltdown, Joey, in the UK, you had said on Twitter, quote, One, raising rates increases financial stability risks. Two, not all bond buying is QE. And three, now is not a great time for poorly targeted fiscal stimulus. Could you explain your points to the good folks at home here in greater than 280 characters, along with what the speakers have been saying? Can you kind of go a little bit further into that, Joey?
5: Sure. And the, first, before I start, thanks for having me on. And sorry for all of the the difficulties. We do love how Twitter rolls out a feature and then never fixes any of the bugs. Oh, it's absolutely <laughs> it's my favorite part of Twitter. Absolutely. Um, but I think to that first point, I think a trade-off that a lot of global so- central banks are facing is this idea that you can, you can move fast and break things, or you're going to have to deal with like more inflation than you want. If you want to raise rates really quickly to try to get ahead of the curve, to try to actually you know put pressure on real interest rates, put pressure on demand, that's going to entail possibly uncovering some financial stability risks. Uh, and I think part of what you saw in the UK Guild market is this idea that we had you know, uh, several rate hikes right around the exact same time. You have this fiscal stimulus announced uh, and then markets just go into chaos because there's an unforeseen weakness exposed by how fast central banks are moving. Um, and I think, Don't think it's quite the same in the US, but it's a similar principle where most of the financial stability risks we've seen uncovered over the last couple of decades have happened during periods of rate hikes, not rate decreases because of uh, how the system is set up. And if you think about how like an adaptive market would work, a lot of the systems that were in place post 2008 have never really experienced this high inflation, high interest rate environment and they've really never experienced very rapidly rising interest rates. Um, the point, the second point I made about not all uh, bond buying is QE was just to remember that finan- uh, central banks have a financial stability mandate fundamentally, even though it's not written down, they tend to treat it as though they have one. They tend to treat it as downstream of their other two mandates. Um, and so even in the case of the UK where they're going out and buying bonds, I don't think people would go out and say monetary policy is looser in the U.K. for that bond buying compared to, you, know, just a couple of weeks ago. And on that third point, I think what we uh, across the world have maybe developed over the last 20 years of like low, very low inflation or too low inflation, is a kind of learned helplessness. You know, this idea that it's all the central bank's responsibility, all the central bank's fault. And the only people who can solve it are the people in the central bank. I think you saw that in the UK where this idea, we'll just pass a big bill. It'll include a lot of fiscal spending and we'll let the bank of England figure out what's going on with inflation. And I think you can really tell that markets did not like that approach one bit.
0: I think that's really fair, Joey. So does anybody have any thoughts on the opening comments from speakers so far? and feel free to chime in whenever you'd like.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll jump in and just uh, kind of you know, I, I agree with I want to elevate kind of what Cuppy said uh, a little a little bit earlier about uh, how how ultimately, you know, what the Fed is doing here is is not going to fix the structural inflationary issues that we uh, that we see, you know, he, he referenced it in reference to commodities and, and how we're by reducing capital to supply, uh, you know, we are, we're actually going to make things worse in a very tight uh, commodity market. But that's true for all goods, you know, uh, you know, important to keep in focus that that Fed, you know, monetary policy is supply side economics. Uh, lowering interest rates for increasing liquidity is a supply side response that is not giving taking money away from people or giving money to people. The only channels with which the Fed historically can control demand uh, is really via, uh, you know, there the, are a couple one uh, trickle-down economics, you know, the firing of, of, of labor via taking money from capital that is much more tenuous than it used to be historically because we've globalized and most, a lot of labor is is, is global. So, you know, and, and it's never been a very, uh, you know, good structural, uh, you know, solution to, to driving down inflation. If anything, it's, uh, you know, can, can drive to, uh, really deep recessions uh, without that much of a, a, an effect on inflation structurally to the real estate market, right? Um, the problem with with uh, the, the real estate market nowadays is uh, most people have locked in 30-year mortgages if you already owned or long-term paper if you if you own real estate. So you're not really being affected here um, as, as rates go higher. What you're doing is you're actually making, and people who have not bought into the market yet, uh, you're making it very difficult for them. You're actually exacerbating inflation on the real estate side and you're driving rents higher. That's what we're seeing. So in a lot of ways, the Fed is driving more structural inflation, um, you know, by by removing supply uh, supply of, of money to, to corporations by not uh, you know not not sending the money that needs to be sent for investment and uh, on, again on the real estate channel. So there's a lot of things that we're seeing that that and, and we've seen this historically in the '60s and '70s. I don't want to get back into that at this moment, but like we've seen this. Uh, we you know if, you, if the Fed uh, uses cyclical measures to to drop you know, inflation in the short term. Structurally, they can really exacerbate uh, even more long-term inflation.
0: Thank you, Jim. Does anybody want to piggyback or disagree with what Jim was saying there regarding the Fed and supply side economics and structural sticky inflation? Cuppy, I saw you unmuted earlier. Did you have something to add there?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with uh, what was just said. I mean... Look, if you're going to raise rates and uh, look at housing, I mean, who's building, who's going to start a new housing project today? I mean, there's a shortage of rental units, especially in all the cities that uh, are growing really fast. Who's going to step up and do that when, when, when your cost of capital just went up a lot? I mean, the only way it works is if your rents go up to earn you the same return on your equity. And, um, you know, rents are going to go up then because, I mean, you have an efficient market that's going to price this thing through. And I just think um, the Federal Reserve is really good at creating uh, equity bubbles and asset bubbles. They're really good at breaking stuff. They're not really good at anything else. And uh, a lot of the inputs and outputs to inflation are really out of their control in a way. And oftentimes, they just exacerbate problems and make things worse. Uh, You know, I've always believed that the two-year note, uh, if the Federal Reserve just tracked that with a six-month lag, which is effectively what they did what they do today, but if they set up an algo to basically add and subtract liquidity with uh, a 10 basis point spread around uh, the, the, the two-year with uh, you know, six months deferred, I think you don't need any of those economists because the two-year usually gets it right and the Fed gets it wrong.
3: I'll add to this. Um, so I think adding, so interest rates, rating them up or down is a blunt instrument and it has impacts on both the supply side and the demand side. So when you lower interest rates, as Jem uh, and noted, companies maybe have more interest, more access to capital. Maybe they can invest in their production cap- capacity. Maybe there's more supply. But when you lower interest rates, you also have more demand as well, as we saw in the huge housing boom in the past. Now, for me, though, let's say we, we run a thought exercise. Fed hikes rates, not 2%, but to 40%. Now, if that were to happen, I would think that you would have the S&P basically have you would have the bond market collapse, you would have widespread unemployment, and you would have inflation down by a whole lot. And we'd never have to worry about inflation again. Uh, the problem is that there are trade-offs in policies like this. You have unemployment skyrocket, and that's not socially desirable. So uh, from my perspective, it's always very easy for the Fed to create deflation or lower inflation. It's always about whether or not The collateral damage. The trade-offs are worth it.
5: I'll take you back off that for a quick second, because I think uh, Joseph, you settle on a good point about the interaction between supply, demand, and interest rates. I come down more on the camp that uh, the Fed primarily controls interest rate or controls inflation through demand, through like the cyclical components of demand, and specifically through like incomes. So, if you're thinking about that from a Fed perspective, you're saying you're raising interest rates today, you expect that that's going to lower people's income growth today, and that's going to manifest as like lower inflation in maybe a year. There was a great paper that came out from the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, just the other week going through rental inflation. And what they basically said is it takes a year to for rising prices of new rents to pass through to the official data in CPI. And it will take, you know, sometimes even longer than that for changes in wage and employment to pass through to rent growth. And then on the supply side, you have this issue that, that people have correctly pointed out. If you're raising interest rates, especially in an inverted yield curve environment, what you get is really high mortgage rates. That really high mortgage rates impacts housing supply first, and then it impacts, you know, labor, income, demand and employment. So you get like this weird trend where you raise rates, initially you get a burst of inflation because you've hurt the supply side. And then you get disinflation as you're hurting the demand side. But that's a process that takes a very long time. I think there are other channels through which you know Fed policy is important. You think maybe there's a wealth effect where you're you're just straight up lowering people's total assets and so you're lowering their ability to consume. I think there's an important uh, exchange rate effect. there's a pass through on higher dollar to lower consumer prices. but both of those also have knock on effects. You know it's especially kind of ironic because so much of global trade is denominated in dollars, and then the Federal Reserve is you know raising interest rates so much, getting the dollar to appreciate so much in an attempt to lower prices that are already denominated in dollars. And that has massive pass throughs for countries that uh, borrow in dollars or you know, f- have to trade in dollars, and so you create these stability risks elsewhere. I think that was like the main uh, discussion point over the last few weeks. Is you're seeing things break outside the U.S. Maybe before they break inside the U.S.
0: Joseph, do you have any uh, any response to what Joey said?
5: No, I
3: think that's a good point. The Fed definitely perceives that their tool acts primarily by
0: moderating aggregate demand. Fair. Thank you. So I'm going to I'm going to spin this over to you again, Tony. You've spoken against the Fed here. What do you think about the panelists have said so far? Anything you want to piggyback on? Maybe Cuppy's ideas is tracking the two year with six month lag. Would that solve your criticism with the Fed? Half kidding, at least, of course. <laughs> yeah,
4: no, that's fair. You know, I, I kind of call the uh, I call the two year note rate. Uh, the bat signal, because I feel that it has been a really, really good indicator of, you know, the bond market's tolerance for or lack of tolerance for commodity inflation. So, you know, I'm I'm anxious to see, you know, what the Fed's reaction, you know, is coming out of this. I'm dying to see, obviously, what the CPI number is. This is going to be interesting, you know, after yesterday's beat. Um, you know, and it feels, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of more interested in, you know, deciding, you know, where the next 20% in the S&P is. You know, I'm, I'm I'm really the guy that's looking for the next hit and run trade and, you know, probably structured a little bit differently than most of the people, um, you know, most of the other speakers. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of focusing right now on the fact that, that, you know, there is a massive, massive bearish sentiment bubble in the S&P Um, You know, and we're pounding this level just below the June low now and not seeing any follow through. And we've got this huge reversal in the guilt market last night. So I don't need to change the subject. And I do want to stay on track. But those are the kind of the things that I'm watching in the rates markets today. You know, the bat signal, you know, two year yields pinned the highs. You know, I still think that they smell um, the fact that inflation is not going back in the bottle and that, you know, whether or not we get a beat or miss, you know, we're going to see eight point something or, you know, around there for the foreseeable future. And, you know, I think that this, that's what this, you know, unbelievable bear market that we have seen in years that took everybody by surprise. Um, you know, that's ruining everybody's 60-40 portfolio and causing a lot of pain and consternation is, you know, why that's a main discussion in the markets. So you know, there's a lot of stuff to work around the, you know, the oil saga is also another totally separate thing that I don't want to get into until we get to commodities, but, you know, in terms of the rates markets, you know, between the two year yield staying firm um, and then the guilt market dramatically reversing today, that's, that's kind of something that I'm
0: keeping. Thank you much. So does anybody want to comment on the S and P bearish sentiment real quick before? I-
1: yeah, I'll, I'll address, uh, you know, Structural market dynamics a little bit. It, it's kind of uh, uh related, um, and, but it, it's important to note that that we are we are at a point here where where OPEX is is coming up next week. I do want to kind of highlight that. uh You know, you're at a point where going into to this Friday and Monday of OPEX, there's generally, uh, especially given how high the the VIX is, there's there's immense potential energy, and that's something that people don't. Broadly understand, but, but you know, after an event comes out, and this is an event, it's priced as an event. Uh, we saw that in the, in, in you know, short-dated um, options the last couple of days. As that event comes out, you have a natural kind of vana charm push. This has nothing to do with, you know, if, as long as the CBA number is not awful, uh, you know, it, it, the market is, is priced for a structural. We see this after events, right? I've, I've talked about this uh, in the past. We, we saw this with uh, the you know with Brexit, with the uh, last two elections, uh, this kind of, you know, counterintuitive move that, that goes the opposite way despite what what's happened in the in the event. I- expect that structural the structural flows out of the chute here if the number isn't absolutely catastrophic um, because of that. Uh, you know, I think that's that's an important thing for people to note. So and, and then add to that the sentiment, the short interest, and everything else that was just referenced. And, and you have a, you the know, a, a potential for a dynamic move here uh, and you know that's just to kind of address markets and, and, and structural dynamics that are happening kind of in real time here.
3: I also add that I think it's important for US investors to realize that US asset markets are, are really a global market, are invested by people throughout the world. Now, when we look at the S&P or the NASDAQ, from our perspective on a dollar basis, it's down a lot throughout the year. But if you're looking through the eyes of a Japanese investor or a European investor in local currency terms, even though the S&P and the NASDAQ have gone down a lot, the dollar has also appreciated a lot. So in yen terms or in euro terms, you're not actually down by a lot. And so that, that's important to keep in mind because people put money here uh, from all over the world. And as the dollar strengthens, that, that's kind of a tailwind for U.S. assets because you have more foreign investors coming in, uh, in part benefiting from the in fact, insulating themselves in price kinds through dollar appreciation.
0: Thank you. So I'm going to pivot here to the next question before we get that CPI drop here shortly. So this is going to be kind of a panel-wide question, and I think we'll start with Joseph here. Numerous Fed speakers, as well as the White House officially, has said that the U.S. is in a better position to deal with any economic problems. Joseph just said, do we think the US is in a better position versus other central banks? Joseph, first here, maybe discuss your solvency constraints blog post as well and then we'll we'll explore the risks of the US central bank a little bit in the system with the panel and how the market perceives it. So uh, you start us off here? Yeah, well, so I think the US central bank, the Fed is in a better position
3: because it has more powerful tools. And part of that is because we print the reserve currency so if you listen to Chair Powell at his congressional hearings, uh, I think a few months ago, he'll he'll talk about some of the ways that he thinks monetary policy acts. And one of them by is through a stronger dollar. Now, the way that the world works is that a lot of things are priced in dollars. In global trade, most of it is actually invoiced in dollars. So if you are a foreign country, say you're a Japanese company purchasing from a Malaysian company, you know odds are that you're buying and selling in dollars. So that gives the US a tremendous advantage because when we strengthen our dollars, we don't actually, I mean, things aren't actually necessarily more expensive for us since since things are already priced in dollars. But if you're, uh, for example, to be more concrete, look at oil. Oil is in priced in dollars and when dollar strengthens, we're still paying in dollars. But if you're a foreign country like Japan, when the dollar strengthens in yen terms, the oil becomes much more expensive. So you are basically, if you're a Japanese company or a Japanese consumer, you're forced to consume less because the commodity that's priced in dollars and the dollar appreciates uh, becomes more expensive to you. So in a sense, the US can force, so in order to get inflation down, you consume less, right? So you consume less, supply and demand comes to balance. You're forcing foreigners to consume less uh, because the dollar is strengthening and you control the dollar and everything you have is priced in dollars. So it, it definitely makes it much, much easier for, for the US to control inflation um, That is has a big commodity component, which when we talk about energy, it does. And also our financial markets so far have appeared much more resilient. You have the UK gilt market breaking, the treasury market has not broken yet. Um, there are indications that it is fragile, maybe in time it will, but So far, because our financial markets are more robust, we don't have as many constraints as as the other um, countries do so far.
0: Thank you, Joseph. Cuppy and Tony, what do you think of the risks the U.S. Central Bank faces and their tools? Let's start with Cuppy here.
2: Well, I mean, the the Federal Reserve never uh, skips a chance to blow stuff up. And right now, you know, you have to remember this is all about oil. And so the Federal Reserve is basically going around the world and saying there's a big deficit. Uh, You know, it's about five million barrels next year, uh, which is, you know, an energy crisis. It's right now in Europe because of that gas crisis. It's become an oil crisis because Europe's going to use more oil to offset the net gas. And so they're going around the world and they're saying to these countries, you know, Turkey, you guys are screwed. Like, we're going to take some of those barrels back. Uh, You know, India, we're going to give you a currency crisis. You know, Pakistan, you you guys already are over the ledge. We're just going to push you a little harder. And, you know, we're going to grab another 100,000 barrels back over there. I mean, in the end, they're, they're grabbing, uh, you know, barrels back for the American consumer by kicking other countries over the ledge. And they got to grab back 5 million barrels, which is a lot of barrels. Um, but, but, I mean, when I say grab back, they're basically wrecking their currency so they can't afford uh, the oil. Uh, it's the only way that you don't end up with oil going parabolic. And uh, it's a really, you know, devious and kind of awful thing to be doing to a lot of our friends around the world because... You know, we have more money than they. And, uh, you know, I think OPEC uh, showed up last week and effectively said, hey, look, these guys are our trading partners. You can't just go around the world bankrupting our trading partners. You know, if, if Powell wants to reduce oil demand globally by five million barrels, well, then we'll just reduce uh, our, our, our output by two million barrels, which is like one million of functional equivalent. And if Powell says, OK, fine, you know, you guys should just raise us six, we'll raise you seven. Well, then OPEC can say, "Nah, we'll, we'll pull you know, another three off the market. And so, uh, you know, OPEC's basically saying don't wreck our trading partners. We will make sure that there is, you know, a functional, balanced market here. And, uh, you know, basically telling Powell that he can't just grab those five million barrels. I don't
4: think people understand that concept of what. Yeah, I want to just compliment on what Cuppy said because he's got such a good handle on this. Um, You know, this this oil saga is like nothing I've ever seen before in 32 years. You know, and Doomburg wrote a great piece about it this morning called "Past the Salt, which is about the SPR inventory and a little bit of brilliant history on it. But man, you know, Biden has been, as you know, as Bloomberg said, Biden is playing poker here with his cards open on the table, right? He is literally signaling, you know, to the Arab state and OPEC that, you know, he knows that they are not going to help. He is considering that, you know, a a subversive kind of act. And he is literally just going to turn around and continue to sell the SPR for political purposes right into the midterm. And when you had Prince Abdulaziz call him out blatantly for that and then go ahead and post the news item, you know, where where they basically, you know, said the Biden administration asked them to hold off until after midterms to for the output cut. I mean, this is like one of the most potentially telegraphed moves in the oil market that I've ever seen, where, you know, we're going to get to a point where, you know, selling the SPR is no longer going to be politically palatable or even look like a, a, an honest attempt at lowering gas prices when they when they empty the SPR and it doesn't go down. And then once the absence of the SPR selling in the absence of the SPR selling oil is one hundred and twenty dollars bid. Like day of, and and it's going to happen fast, and so that's going to you know dramatically shake up the table again, and so you know I'm I'm dying to see how this plays out, but man, you know one of, one of the things that really really is enticing is how you know the oil seems to looks to me like a beach ball underwater, and one of the most attractive trades
0: on the board. Thank you much. We've got CPI in a moment, so while we wait on more info there, Ooh, Joey, what hot. are, is it hot? What do we hot. got? 8. And we are 2. down
1: limit. Is that right? Woo. Woo, it's hot. Woo.
0: Watching those futures flip live was wild, as it usually is. Tony, so you we've... killed it. You killed the market. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. Damn it, Tony. I don't even know what to do with you anymore, man. Woo, it's hot. Hot, hot. So while we kind of digest this here, Joey, I want to kick it to you. What are you seeing in the commodity-driven data given OPEC's backdrop and the Fed's ability to control it?
5: Well, I think there's uh, an interesting dynamic over the last few months, uh, especially maybe July, August, where the narrative from the Fed was, hey, gas prices are very high, headline inflation is very high that's what matters for consumer inflation expectations, and consumer inflation expectations are what matter to us. So we can't ignore, you know, oil prices, even though we acknowledge we can't control them directly, you know, we're, we're still going to tighten in the face of rising oil prices. Uh, and I think there hasn't maybe been a uh, coincident flip of that as, as oil prices decrease. There's been sort of a uh, a belief that Inflation is still bad, you know, there's no not been change in the hiking cycle. If anything, it's gotten more intense. Uh, and I think that just speaks to uh, how bearish the Fed has gotten about their ability to control inflation without a recession. If you looked at the most recent summary of economic projections, they basically say they expect the unemployment rate to go up a full percent uh, over the next year, which is something that does not happen outside of recessions. Uh, and And thinking about this year where we've seen basically no real output growth in the U.S. You've seen job growth, you've seen income growth, but you haven't seen real output growth in the U.S. Uh, I think that speaks to how, how difficult the real economy is taking this. I'm trying to interpret the uh, the data as it's coming in here. We Does anyone see the, the big outline? I
4: mean, it's just food and energy. Point six versus point four expected month over month. Point four versus point two. Eight point two percent year over year versus eight point one. No, I don't see a massive outlier at all.
2: I feel like my mom's gonna be calling me again to complain about the price of broccoli and cucumbers. You know, hey, Cuppy, You know, it's up another twelve cents for broccoli. What the hell is the Fed doing
4: over there, Harrison? They want nineteen dollars a pound for, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Damn.
0: So as we kind of slowly read over the CPI data here, uh, as planes, and while speakers are talking a bit shamelessly here, and the market falls nearly 2%, are there any other initial impressions you guys have gotten from anyone here, given the markets and the CPI print?
2: I mean, a lot of people are positioned for it. People, and I'd love to know what Jem thinks, but people bought a ton of YOLO Friday puts, I don't know, maybe we can't really, really release until uh, Monday when those go off the board. Like, I feel like there's a release that's overdue in this market, like that, that crazy down day where you, you leave at noon and just want to, you know, drink a beer and cry. We haven't had that yet. And until you have that, the market can't bottom, but maybe that releases Monday. Jim, uh, what do you think?
1: Yeah, honest, honestly, uh, you know, it's important to step back and, and, and think about, like, this: 8.2 versus 8.1, I mean, if we had seen 8.3, 8.4, something crazy, it's one thing. But does eight point two uh, change the trajectory dramatically? Uh, you know, what we'll, we'll see. I don't. Uh, you know, it's obviously important. Uh, if, I, as I mentioned at the top, I, I think this market is is kind of looking for um, a a, a short term bottom. I to be clear, I think there's bigger structural issues. I've talked about this in depth, but I don't, I think, uh, you know, structurally there's, there's bigger issues, but we're, you know, this is the seventh day in a row that the market is down. We have not seen that since February of 2020. You know, just, you know, about a month ago, we were, we were trading 41.50, you know, there's a big, big decline. Uh, The market's front run of stuff, front run stuff. You always have to be aware when things get, uh, scary, right? Uh, things extend a bit, uh, you know, you maybe time to, to, you know, you don't catch a falling knife, but you start looking for ways to kind of um, play the opposite. Again, the the, the the important thing to note here is, is you know, the worst things get now to the downside, as I mentioned, also the Fed starts to have uh you know problems internationally things they have to deal with that are that are uh, a bit, bit bigger so uh, again you don't jump in here and, and catch a <laughs> night, but time time to time to be looking for opportunities the uglier this gets into friday monday uh, uh, yeah it's, I ex-
2: it feels like it feels like we fade the next two days because the yolos and i agree with you jam and it just feels like once those YOLOs are off the board, uh, you don't have that, you know, OTM put protection, it just releases. Uh, in, in the end, you know, the Fed can't stop with uh, CPI in the eights and Fed funds at the threes because you're going to have the guilt uh, scenario where the, the, the far end of the curve just melts its face and that just blows up the, the banking system, the, the pension system, you know, all, all the, you know, 60-40 funds that are levered three times. Like, I, I don't know what they can do do they just have a really shitty hand right now and you never uh, underestimate the feds ability to play their terrible hand badly
3: hey so i'll just add that just looking at the race anyway, market sorry. i didn't mean so to the,
2: interject too much
3: the two years up uh, like 13 basis points so and it looks like the terminal rates being up to, moved up to a 4.85 percent so um it, the market is basically pricing in a higher even higher for uh, longer, Fed right now.
0: So, Joseph, I want to dive into that a little bit more. Do you have any other initial impressions here? Is this what the Fed would want to see when the Fed said there would be pain, which, <laughs> which I assume meant uh, Cuppy's mom is complaining about broccoli in the backdrop there. But uh, any other initial impressions here, Joseph?
3: Yeah, so I, I think this is right. So, uh, right now, the Fed, as we hear, is basically a one mandate bank they want inflation to go down. Inflation is not going down. Um, In fact, it appears to be broadening. So this is a big problem for them. And market pricing at a more aggressive Fed, I think, is is right. And there will be probably a recession. There will be more financial market turmoil. But that is part of the plan. That is, I think, how they will get inflation back down. It's a trade-off of monetary policy.
0: And so an updated San Francisco Fed recently said that inflation will get back to a 2% mark in three years, and also stated core inflation has likely already peaked quite a bit. We've seen consumer sentiment up and commodities falling. Will the Fed's actions get us back to 2%? And, and honestly, does that even matter? Does that 2% target even really matter if we do? Let's, uh, let's start with Joey here, given the CPI print.
5: Um, I think just to 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 go back, it was very funny uh, a couple of speakers ago when you're saying like, oh, you know, eight point one, eight point two, if it was eight point three or eight point four, I'd be worried. Uh, you know, the target is is two percent, which is like two and a half percent CPI. You know, uh they target two percent personal consumption expenditures versus price index. Um, so it's it's sometimes uh good to keep in mind just how off target we are. Um I think. Three years is a, a long time frame. I think a lot can happen in three years. If someone was forecasting, you know, inflation in twenty nineteen, they would have gotten it pretty wrong. I, I imagine. Um, I think it's difficult, but I think speaking to uh, what Joseph said a little bit ago about the rising rates in response to this, I think the commitment is higher for longer until inflation comes down. Inflation is like the sole. A uh, part of the mandate that the Fed is really focused on.
0: All right. So let's move over to the next point I wanted to discuss. Cuppy, despite this print, you previously said that the political class will force Powell to back down. They will decide that increased inflation is preferable to detonating the Treasury. The pause is coming and it will send equities parabolic. Can you explain this point, Cuppy?
2: Yeah, I mean, they printed a bunch of uh, QE. Uh, they've done, like, minimal QT, like, like truly minimal. They are not even hit their own targets. And at some point, and I don't know when, but at some point, they're going to pause. You know, they're going to say, "Nah, we were just kidding about two. That's not even in our mandate. Like, we just kind of made that up, uh, which is true. They just kind of made it up a few years ago. And, no, nah, the, the real number is, you know, 7% now. And if we just get it down to seven, mission accomplished, and we're pausing, We can't blow up our friends in private equity. I mean, you know, we have to go golfing with those guys. You know, they're just going to change the rules somewhere along the way. And they're going to blame it on climate change or equality or something. And um, they're going to pause because, I mean, the Fed in the end wants to be well-liked. I mean, these guys are all going to, you know, cycle out and get jobs at uh, private equity again. Like, (laughs) they can't blow up their new bosses. And so... You know, at the same time, I don't think they have the tools necessary. They, they don't control energy policy. This is about the price of oil. Oil is going to 200 on the way, probably in a blow off to 500. And they don't know how to conjure up. Uh, you can't print uh, molecules. You can't print oil. Like, I don't they, they don't have the capacity to solve the problems. We've never had a five million barrel a day deficit globally or five percent of uh, global uh, energy consumption like they don't have the tools in place and the people in charge of uh, you know, the U.S. government and some of the other governments like Canada, we actually have uh, incremental capacity that can be brought online you know, if they actually built a pipeline, um, you know, are, aren't much interested in uh, solving this energy crisis either. So you have this pending energy crisis and the Fed's just kind of like this deer in a headlight and all they can do is QE, QT and they can, they can play with interest rates you know, on the margin, but nothing stops uh, – none of their tools work with $200 oil. And, you know, you're going to see the CPI going to the double digits. And what's going to happen is they're going to redefine the definition of the CPI. They're going to adjust it. They're going to blame Putin or you know, bl- blame the Saudis or blame anyone. And who is going to deal with the relatively high inflation going forward? And if they accept relatively high inflation and they pause, I think equity markets go screaming out of control. I mean, maybe not, you know, SaaS stocks and fraud and Ponzi, but, you know, the, the S&P will go back to being 30 percent energy and that part of the uh, S&P will scream out of control. And, you know, I don't want to put words in Tony's mouth, but, I mean, I, I'm a loyal reader of his uh, daily, and I, I tend to think he'd uh, agree with me on that.
4: I couldn't agree more, man. We just laid out the scenario, cuppy. I mean, you know, it seems like one of the most obvious trades on the board is to have long December risk for, um, you know, heading into next year in the fossil fuel markets and, you know, pick your spot, but that, that seems the way it- to be the way it's lining up for me too.
0: So does anyone else have another response to Cuppy's comment before I move on to the next question?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in real quick. I mean, it's important to note that, you know, everybody looks at the 60s and 70s and and, and looks at uh, kind of the OPEC crisis then, everybody uh, looks at the Vietnam War, uh, and looks at the Great Society program and says these are all un Connect, this not connected things that drove inflation. If any one of them hadn't happened, yada yada. The reality is, if you look at the world we're in right now, it's a, strangely similar. You know, that, that's not a coincidence. I think it's important to note these things cluster. When you have populism and you're trying to address inequality, when I say you, you I mean the people are demanding it. It's the millennial class i'm you know, the younger generation on down because of what's happened the last forty years is doing globally that creates scarcity of resources that scarcity of commodities that scarcity of labor that scarcity of capital when that when you have a scarcity of these things because the cost of money is going up you get deglobalization you get protectionism you get nationalism and all of these things make weak players start to lash out which cause wars we've seen this multiple times throughout history it causes those with power in the form of commodities and holding the resources to flex their muscles like we've seen with OPEC and we're seeing again so these things everybody thinks uh you know they're they're talking about them independently in two dimensions the fed's trying to react to these things in two dimensions with uh, trying to affect aggregate demand which they can't even do that well the reality is it's a multidimensional thing, and these things cluster, they're, they're, they're related. And once you get to a time of structural effects that lead to these secular uh, inflationary periods, um, it's not going to solve itself in a year. It's not going to solve itself by reducing aggregate demand in the short term. Ask William McChesney Martin, ask Arthur Burns, it takes time. Um, so I think that's the big, the big takeaway I, I would leave people with.
2: Yeah, I'd I'd agree completely. You've said it a lot more ele- elegantly than I can. Uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah, there's just a lot of things going on, and it's sort of out of the Fed's hands in many.
0: So pushing forward here. I'm going to pivot this one to Joseph and Tony. We'll start with Joseph and then kick her over to Tony here. McDonald expects the Fed Reserve to become concerned enough about the market's reaction to its monetary tightening to, quote-unquote, back away over the next three weeks, announce a smaller federal funds rate increase of 0.5% in November, and, quote-unquote, then stop. Is a pivot possible, given CPI and inflation clearly not going away anytime soon and, in fact, spreading? So let's start with Joseph here.
3: So if you listen to the Fed, they're telling you uh, unequivocally that there will be no pivot. They're going to be higher for longer because they want to avoid the mistakes of the stop and go of the 70s. Now, the market obviously doubts them, and many people doubt them, and they think they're going to pivot soon. And that was in market pricing, obviously, not so obviously anymore. So, that is what the Fed says it wants to do. And I think they, and I believe them that they think that this is the right policy. Now, the question for me is whether or not they'll be able to withstand the political pressure to, uh, to actually pivot earlier. Now, the political pressure, fr- from my perspective, has to do with a lot of people believing that the trade off between inflation and unemployment should be weighed towards unemployment. So right now, it's really easy to be tough in monetary policy. Inflation is high. Unemployment is very low. But if we go towards a few months in the future, maybe inflation comes down a little bit. Maybe unemployment goes up a little bit. And then it becomes much more difficult. And then, in my view, that's a possible place where the Fed could pivot. Now, to be clear, there's absolutely no indication from Fed Communications right now that they want to do that. They're all very uniform. They're going to hold, say, 4.5% for the rest of next year. Um, so, if there is going to be a pivot, right now we're definitely, definitely premature. We have to see unemployment at least uh, tick up a little bit. Now, I, I'd also uh, piggyback on what Cuffy and, and Jim mentioned that this is a very multidimensional thing. And one thing to keep in mind is that as far as let's say there being a pivot, it could happen first in other markets. For example, you could have some some in the ECB or the BOE implements some form of yield control or persistent support of their bond markets. And when they do something like this, that eases monetary policy globally, and that actually buys the Fed a little bit more time to maintain a common, more, more restrictive stance. So it's it's not just something that we watch domestically. Uh, markets are connected globally, especially when we are talking about the rates market.
0: Thank you, Joseph. Tony, do you have any other comments on the pivot narrative?
4: Yeah, I'm not going to take up too much time because I am not the treasury expert that Joseph is. And that was really well laid out. Um, The only thing that I can offer in terms of, you know, really having a tough time figuring out how the Fed is going to pivot is, you know, a continuous study of the commodity markets. And, you know, when you still, you know, you've got natural gas at 650, but that's still 3x the price that it was two years ago. Right. And you've got Dutch TTF, you know, is backed off to whatever, 100 euro per megawatt hour. But it used to be 20 euro per megawatt hour. And it doesn't look like that genie is going back in the bottle either. And as long as the tip of the spear and I'm talking about fossil fuel market is as tight as it is, you know, as long as the crude oil calendar is between, you know, $10 and $30 and not, you know, back in its historical norms of, you know, uh, know, five, you know, four to six dollars for the whole calendar. I think that we're going to have a huge problem. Like it's going to be that that story where the you know, like Joseph said, that the the inflation is just not going to go away anytime soon. You're going to see continued tightness and spikes and crises situations in these commodity markets, and I think that's what's going to really hold the Fed's hand to the fire, where they're they're going to have a really tough time pivoting. So while I was looking for a market dynamic snapback and got you know the pie mashed in my face a little bit here. Um, I still think that um, you know markets are going to have to work their way lower, the inflation is going to be around, rates are going to, uh, going up, and the Fed is going to have almost no choice but to you know let the mark- bond markets take it away. That's my only idea.
0: So Joseph mentioned the political pressure here as well. Some politicians and analysts have had some disagreement. Warren says she's very worried that the Fed will, quote, tip this economy into a recession. Mitch McConnell says the U.S. is likely to tip into a recession as the Fed raises interest rates to combat historic inflation. How does politics mix into the Fed's decision making here? I'd love to get your thoughts here, Joey, on something not necessarily quantitative.
5: Yeah, it's, it's a difficult uh, situation because the Fed is supposed to be this like nominally independent institution. You know, they're, they're perceiving the economy from high on in the clouds uh, and they're above sort of the, the petty squabbles in Washington. Uh, but I think people know that they're really only a couple steps removed from the political process and they're put there for a specific reason. It's is to play like a uh, bad cop to an extent, you know, it's like the Ticketmaster model where people don't want to get mad at the musician; they want to get mad at Ticketmaster for the ticket prices. And for a similar reason, I think uh, people are happy to delegate inflation-fighting authority to the Fed, um, and then they're also happy to then be able to to, to rail on the Fed for their decisions. Um, I think it's a difficult situation. Uh, partially because I tend to lean on a different side than than most people. I think the actual political drive is very anti-inflation. I think, you know, what we're seeing probably in the midterm elections, um, a couple of weeks from now is inflation is going to be the far and away domineering issue and that the election is going to be determined by people's feelings on inflation and political leaders have a really big incentive to get inflation down and they're leaning on the fed a little bit to do that like i said i think that fits somewhat into this idea that the fed is getting more bearish they want to be higher for longer they're willing to tolerate more real economic pain to get inflation down because of how much a priority it is for them politically and in the like heady economic sense
0: jim you've spoken pretty openly about political narratives in the fed i'd love your thoughts here as well
5: yeah
1: look uh, again I, you're gonna keep having me refer to history because it's the best guide we have um you know i, I mentioned this in the past but uh, everybody uh you know lambasts arthur burns right everybody says like he's the reason that structural inflation continued a decade or you know whatever longer eight years longer than it should have the reality is he raised the fed funds rate ten and a half percent and drove the biggest recession since the great depression in 1974 1975 political pressure is real it's easy to sit back and, and we're not in the depths of a massive recession and say hey the fed will stay the course right they have to stay the course but if you're driving a recession that's the next biggest thing <laughs> since uh, the depression um political powers uh you know, political forces are real and and uh, you have to worry about the other side of the equation, and the Fed will worry about the other side uh, side of the equation as much as they'd like to use their narrative tools to convince us otherwise. Um, you know, especially you know, this is not the '60s and '70s. The amount of leverage we have at the corporate and sovereign level, the amount of globalization that's happened, that you know, malinvestment that's happened as a function of zero interest rates um, and monetary policy for 40 years, it's just too combustible. So. The reality is the Fed can drive a narrative all they want. They're not going to raise, um, you know, get get real rates. And if inflation keeps going higher, um, you know, they're not going to get them positive, uh, you know, in a meaningful way. Uh, But, uh, you know, so we're, they're stuck, you know, there's a, they're they're going to try and do the best they can with the blunt instruments they have, but it's really up to government uh, and policymakers to, to drive structural change, and if they don't uh, the market you know and the economy will will make them do that um, so I think that's that's what's important to keep in mind
0: so on that point uh, of what Jem just said here, many say Volcker was free from political influence and took down inflation. Is that possible in today's climate? Let's kick this over hey.
2: Um, look, Volcker sort of helped. Uh, I, I, I would say it's probably about 10 percent Volcker, like 90 percent Reagan. Uh, if you look at the, the policies that Reagan put in place, uh, you know, all the deregulation, uh, you know, whether it's airlines or going after the air traffic controllers, which got the unions to kind of uh, shush down a little or what they, he did with uh, the railroads that reduced uh, transport costs. I mean, a year into these policies, that the price of a flight from one side of the country to the other was down by like two-thirds. I mean, the, the price of shipping a container from you know New York to Los Angeles had dropped uh, by two-thirds as well. I mean, these are the things that stopped inflation. I mean, this cycle, the inflationary problem is, is really tied to energy. You know, last time it was tied to wages more. Um, if you're going to you know, go up and fight against an energy crisis. You have to be willing to allow producers to produce more energy. And I find it ludicrous that uh, Biden's circling the globe, going and talking to people that probably aren't our friends and begging them for energy when the guys in Texas want to produce energy and they're not allowed to, um, you know, until basically we say, look, if you take the price of oil up, we're going to produce a whole lot more oil here in the States. And gain market share versus OPEC until you have that conversation internally in the country and agree that that's the solution, you're going to have an energy crisis and that's going to drive the CPI and then everything else is going to just march in line. And, you know, uh, you need strong leadership. And, you know, I don't don't even know if Biden knows how to put his pants on without help. So, uh, no, I think this crisis is going to continue and accelerate. And inflation is really structural because it's policy driven. It's not uh, interest rate driven. Um, And, yeah,
0: that's how I feel. Man, some mornings I don't even know if I can put my pants on without help. If I'm being honest. <laughs> so pants aside, we did speak about inflation, political pressure, and more. Jem just mentioned recession as well. With this CPI print, Joey, you spoke about the new economic picture given employment and GDI. Would love your explanation on the new economic picture and the kind of recession. Excuse me, the idea of recession.
5: Sure, that that piece was sort of going back on. Uh, some of the narratives that that I had for the early part of this year, and I think some people had, where uh, you have this large debate between, was there two quarters of negative real output, which is like that colloquial definition of a recession, um, versus the gross domestic income data, which is basically another way of measuring output um, that said we had two quarters of positive real growth. and you know, we got some revisions, some new data. The new picture is basically worse than we expected. You know, no matter how you look at it, since the start of this year, we've had no real growth or negative real growth for the first two quarters. I think people are more optimistic about, about this quarter, about Q3. Um, but a lot of those downward revisions were to wages, especially wages for, you know, very high income workers. And this was the unique dynamic that I think we're in right now where you have, um, you have a labor shortage, people are, companies are hiring at a really rapid rate. At the same time, real wages are declining really rapidly um, and output is declining which is a very weird place to be. It's very rare to see declines in output alongside rises in employment historically. And I think the 70s example is a little bit instructive. People you know, think of the 70s as the oil shocks and all of these you know, negative supply side effects. What gets overlooked is you had this massive employment growth and massive real wage growth throughout most of the 70s. So here we're in a weird dynamic where Uh, things are hurting on the supply side at the same time the Fed is really trying to hurt things on the demand side Um, and it's somewhat of a rock and a hard place where there is no easy answer for them or in their perspective and that's like I said earlier part of the reason I think that they're more bearish. Um, On the recession debate fundamentally to me a recession is about rising unemployment you know, that's the structural long-term impacts of a recession. That's really the demand-killing part of a recession. And I mentioned earlier that the Fed forecasts like a 1% increase in unemployment, which would be, in my mind, recessionary. But so far this year, we clearly haven't seen that. And in Q3, we also saw pretty massive growth in non-farm payrolls and employment levels. So it's just a very, very weird picture, to say the least.
0: Thank you, Joey. So Tony and the panel at large, thoughts on a recession and how the market looks given a recession, especially the wage declines Joey just talked about.
4: Are we really talking about whether or not we're in a recession? I mean, <laughs> isn't the bond market the master of predicting and and you know kind of telling us where we are? And you know, I mean, the curve has been inverted for how long now? You know that was why that comment the other day out of Jamie Dimon was that you know we have high recession risk and the market could go down twenty percent from here was so such like a standout comment. It was like Jamie, have you not looked at the 2s, um, tens curve since oh I don't know this summer? you know, when it went through zero, you know, crashing through zero down to minus 60 basis points and now sits near the wides at minus 45 basis points. Right. We've seen two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. It's like, you know, the recession is upon us. Right. Take a look around. Everybody that I know is talking about not being able to pay for stuff. You know, the recession is, you know, we're either on the cusp of it or we're about to head into, you know, the eye of the storm. Um, you know, and we the one thing that seems sure is that we've got, you know, lousy economic data ahead. We've probably got a lot of earnings, downward revisions ahead. And, you know, if anything, then maybe we can hope for that to find a capitulative spot in the market. But until then, we probably don't. But in terms of the recession, man, you know, it's happening. And I think the interest rate market is telling you that they're way more focused on the inflation than the recession.
0: Does the rest of the panel have any other comments on what speakers have said?
1: Yeah, I'll just add that, you know, look, recession, people, the whole talk is about recession. It's again, it's that two dimensional conversation that, that that's the wrong conversation. It's the Fed, the, the one the Fed wants uh, you to have the The, the reality is uh, in the 60s and 70s, something that people don't understand is we had a demand push economy and GDP growth in real terms. Inflation was high in real terms outpaced over a longer period. I'm talking not the, the six month, one year look over a longer period, outpaced, it was, it was above trend, much stronger than it's been in the last 40 years. Um, so the, the question isn't really the demand side. I think structurally demand will continue to improve as long as we have a demographic, you know, realities of demand. You know, the, the, the millennials on down are, are at 40% of the wealth creation or baby boomers that were at, were at this age. And they're coming to their prime spending and household formation years. Um, you are going and, and we're transferring money to them to help support them in, in that process and politically they're gaining power and they're going to have more influence. So this is going to be a demand push economy. It's not about GDP. It's about margins. It's about earnings. It's about multiples in so the 60s and 70s. Multiple contraction in any other inflationary time was massive. The market went nowhere, 68 to 82, 14 years in nominal terms and it lost 70% of its value in real terms. But earnings were actually, I mean, but, but GDP was actually quite good. The economy is not the market. I can't, not, the economy is not the market, the market is not the economy. Everybody's taught differently, that's not how it works. Multiples range of the S&P from four to 40, right? Uh, you know, we are a, going to be in an earnings recession uh, for, for the foreseeable future. In the short term, yes, we will get a recession. Some of that is base effects. Um, you know, uh, and again, we will affect demand, uh, you know, tangentially. But, but uh, you know, I, I think that detracts from the bigger picture, which is what's happening to stocks, what's happening to earnings, what's happening to margins. We're at record margins still; those are coming down. We're also at close to record price to sales. That's going to normalize, right? Um, these are these are things to keep in mind.
0: Thank you, Jim. So, one thing that I've really liked about these spaces with all of the unique expertise that we get into these panels is many times. And and, I mean, it's happened a few times here already this morning as well. A lot of questions going back and forth between panelists. So I want to ask the whole panel here, while we've got all of this unique expertise up here, does anyone on the panel want to ask any questions to someone else on the panel? Well,
2: I'm always of the view there's a bull market somewhere um, and clearly it's not in tech stocks right now. Um, and people seem to keep buying the dip the whole way down. I mean, where do you guys see the bull market? Like we could all cry about inflation, but that's what want to kind of make some money. I mean, ask you like where's the bull market today?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm going to agree with you on this copy. And I think a lot of us agree that's a, that's the only thing that worries me on this one, but, uh, but resources, right? Uh, the supply side is just, awful uh, and, and you have an inelastic supply side where uh, where you can't fix supply quickly we've drained the SPR um, and so there's not many solutions on the supply side it's inelastic whereas the demand side as I just mentioned is actually structurally bullish not bearish and people are pricing at a two-dimensional demand side based on what the fed policy but the structural demand side of the equation um, is actually quite bullish, more medium to long term. So, you know, you don't want to, uh, you don't have to dive in all in here, but that's, if you're talking about a, a structural trend, uh, you know, that that's uh, about as good as one as you, you can have for, for investment. But I already have too Talk. much oil. What else? I need something else. I have too much oil. I agree Lucky with there you. Is- Cubby, there is nothing else, man. Look at what's working.
4: They, like, Look around the world at what's working. Like, crypto is not working. Like, the financial system is literally combusting before our eyes with the need for central bank interaction. And Bitcoin's not even working, right? Stocks aren't working. Bonds aren't working. The only thing in town, the dollar, natural resources, oil services, exploration and production. They're still up 45% year to uh, date. Uh,
1: I'll, give you, I'll give you a couple others you know, sit by government, government is going to be forced to and has a mandate to address from the millennial generation on down to address uh, inequality, you're going to get more fiscal, it's not over, they're not going to call it fiscal, they're going to call it the Inflation Protection Act, they're going to, you know, call it all kinds of things. And it's not left, it's not right. I want to be clear, like, you get a a Republican Congress, like, you're going to get the same stuff as, as we go into a recession. The reality is government is, the, is where the, the money is flowing from. It will continue to be that way. That's what it was like in the 60s and 70s. Sit by government. Get as close as you can. Look at the budget of the U- U.S. government. Go, go take a look. What do they spend money on? Put your money in stocks that will benefit from those uh, responses. Some of these will be supply-side, by the way. It's not just going to people. Yes, it's going to push demand, but it's also going to push supply-side measures, unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, at some point. You Know where who's going to benefit from those supply side measures of, as a corporation? Look at healthcare, look at def- defense stocks, look at um, you know, every again, go, go line by line, go look at infrastructure, go line by line, and 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 that's that's a great place, uh, you know, structurally to look.
3: Yeah, I agree with Jeb and Kapi on, on the natural resources, and that that seems to be. Just that seems to be what's working, as as Tony mentioned, and also anyone else to be
2: great. uh, Longs, I just want to be long. I want to find the things that are going to moonshot. I mean, I think the '70s is a good template, but you know, it it kind of like rhymes, but it's a bit different always. I mean, what are we missing from the '70s uh, template? I mean, why, when, or if gold ever?
0: Joseph, go ahead. I saw you were muting there. Yes.
3: So I think what will continue to work is dollar strength. If you look at what's happening in the world as yields go up globally, it's the US financial system that's relatively stronger than the others. You already saw something breaking in the UK. I would think something would break in the Eurozone as well. And as those central banks cave, money will continue to come to the US as interest rate differentials widen. So in my view, the dollar continues to strengthen. Um, Eventually, it would seem that our bond market might also have problems. And maybe that's the time where people leave let's say bonds and go to other more tangible assets like gold and silver. But I think that's in the future right now. So far, it seems that the dollar bull market in my view will continue. And I also agree with what everyone mentioned about real assets. The, The trajectory is for the government to continue to spend. And when the government continues to spend that's inflationary. And as you know, they basically just conjure money out of thin air and spend issuing treasuries. is like issuing dollar bills to spend. So, that trend looks to be pretty, pretty sad.
1: I wanna follow up on one one thing here. I mentioned before, the economy is not the market. There are ways to invest in the economy that are not as market sensitive. Um, You know, I'm actually telling you that I think demand is going to outpace what people expect, Uh, you know, structurally for the next decade, right? Uh, There are companies that will benefit from that, that are not as resource dependent. Uh, ironically, you know, some of the non-speculative names that actually produce, uh, you know, uh, the discounted cash flows, uh, you know, that actually will matter again, um, you know, on the tech side might be, especially in a way that's connected to, to, to kind of uh, to government where the money's flowing um, might do very well. Um, so, you know, again, it's important to note, again, I'm not saying the, the economy in the short term, yes, we're going to get into a, a recession, um, but broadly, companies will still make money over time if they make money, uh, if they actually have discounted cash flows. The problem is so much of the market had become speculative and based on growth, you know, 20 year uh, outcomes um, and as over leverage uh, didn't have, uh, you know, the DCF when, when rates kind of go, go up and, and duration is a problem. Go find things that make money. I was, you know, I was talking to private equity head, a friend of mine. Just, you know, in the tech space uh, just this week, um, you know, they're seeing revenue growth across the board. Um, there, There's, uh, you know, we're in a demand push economy. Um, you know, you just got to change the way you're, you're investing. Uh, we can't just speculate on 40-year, on 80-year outcomes.
0: So before we move along to closing thoughts, does anybody else have any other comments on potential bull markets here?
2: I guess one thing I'd add to what uh, Jem's saying is like uh, we all think in real terms because we are, you know, focused on economics and everything is quoted in real terms. Ninety nine percent of the world thinks in nominal terms. And, you know, in an inflationary world, nominal is usually pretty good. And people, you know, the inflation comes to a lag. And, you know, I, I think uh, what Jem's saying is right. I mean, you're going to have uh, you know, wage growth. You're going to have uh, spending power. It's all in nominal terms. But uh there's companies that take market share in a you know okay economy and those guys going to see huge revenue growth and the markets will mostly price revenue growth before they uh notice the margin compression and so there might be some really good opportunities along those lines
4: i just wanted to offer up uh to, to a play on Cuppy's molecule idea that you know if um you know, if the if the political powers that be are going to continue to suppress the molecules, you know, that we need in the energy space, et cetera, et cetera, then I think fertilizer is going to have to come into the foreground. You know, those are a few of the very few stocks that are still up on the year. You know, like um, uh, CF Industries and Mosaic and stuff like that. But you know, if the natural gas and energy prices stay at these levels, or even within ten or twenty percent of these levels. Food inflation is going to continue to be massive. You know, the squeeze on crops is going to be massive. Fertilizer is going to be really important. And I think that that might be one that's kind of at the center of the storm. So those are some of the, uh, you know charts that are intact, bull market charts, cuppy that are intact that we can look at. Um, that may change as of today, but at least those are sectors that are fundamentally sound, in my opinion.
2: No, that makes sense to me. I mean, bull markets stay in bull market mode usually. Right basically basically scan your scan your screens for what's still green on the year and as soon as the spoo stops selling off those are the things that explode. that's what
4: i mean right Puppy? what do you do if you get blown out of of your you know you, you finally get blown out of your facebook you finally get blown out of your amazon the charts are broken you finally out you know what do you do you look at the year and you're like what's working right and you pick a spot in those bull markets and you invest so i still think that we have that potential between now and december
2: yeah, I mean, there's so much performance pressure. So many guys are down in the year. You got to just take a shot on goal to get to break even. Otherwise, you get redeemed and, you know, I mean, your, your career's over. Like, so many guys are just going to have to go out there and take shots on goal with, you know, leverage, too. And yeah, they're going <laughs> to toss their Facebook, get the tax loss, and move to something else.
0: 100%. So, with the market opening up for normal trading hours here in about 18 minutes. As we wrap up here, I want to get everybody's closing thoughts on the discussion today. And then before we send everyone on their way, I'd like you guys to plug anything you're working on, anything you got coming out that the folks should be on the lookout for. So any closing thoughts and plug what you got to plug? Let's start with Jim here.
1: Closing thoughts, uh, you know, economy is not the market. Uh, look to invest in the economy into pullbacks. Uh, you know, don't forget about the right tail, right? The, the reality is, uh, as, as somebody else mentioned, uh, inflation ultimately, 8.5% inflation gives you a credit to the market uh, every year of 8.5%. If, if uh, recessionary uh, you know pressures are, are not as strong, again, we'll, we'll get a recession in the short term, but if it's not, the longest, deepest recession uh, that represents an o- opportunity structurally for, for real cash flow. Uh, multiple contraction is a thing. Uh, we are moving money away from investment to uh, via the opposite of the Tina effect. You haven't heard about that. But not only is money flowing out of the market, money's flowing to bonds now because it's a safer place. Um, so so uh, investment in markets will decline. That represents bigger, better opportunities for yield real, uh, you know, yield and stocks. So, so play, play that game. In terms of things we're doing, KaiVolatility.com backslash news gets you all of our newsletters, all of our new recent, most recent appearances. Uh, that'll keep people up. We're coming up with a newsletter in the next month, a uh, month and a half here, uh, which will talk about inflation, right? Uh, and, and volatility uh, trends, implied volatility trends in, in a time of inflation. So it should be uh, an interesting thing. I'm speaking at the EQ derivatives Um, conference in Miami in November as well.
0: Thank you, Jim. And thank you as well as always for coming. Joseph, do you have any closing thoughts and anything to plug before we wrap up?
3: Yeah, well, first off, I'd like to know that I subscribe to Jim's newsletter and it's great and I can't wait to to get more issues of it. So I I think I I touched upon something that Kofi mentioned that was really important and that he noted that one of the things that caused inflation to go away uh, was Reagan, Reagan administration. So inflation has a very large fiscal component as well. Um, even though, as Joy noted, that the Fed is tasked as being the bad cop to stop inflation, uh, the Fed doesn't have complete control of it because a lot of inflation, because part of it is also the fiscal side. If you look at the federal government, um, every year it's deficit spending by about a trillion dollars and expected to do so going forward. More recently, it just forgave hundreds of billions of dollars of student loans. It's really hard for the Fed who controls interest rates um, to get inflation under control if the fiscal authorities who don't care and don't react to interest rates continue to spend. And so that trajectory looks to continue. And as long as, as, unless the fiscal side gets into control, it's really hard for me to see inflation being lower over the next few years. as Jim noted, this likes to be, it looks like it's going to be a secular thing, and if that's the case, we're probably going to have uh, structurally higher inflation, I think, for the, for the decade, in my view.
0: Thank you, as always, Joseph. It's, I mean, I, just, I can't thank the panel enough in general. I'll go over another little spiel on that before we wrap up. Before then, Tony, anything you got to plug? Anything you got coming out? Any closing thoughts?
4: Um, the closing thoughts. I think you know. I just want to emphasize that that, that play around. You know, the play and energy around the turn of the midterms here. You know, if Biden is really playing his uh, poker mat hand uh, face open, um, you know, and he's trying to get it down to midterms, the SPR supply is dwindling. You know we have really really good evidence that's one of the few things keeping the oil market from exploding you know i just i don't you know i haven't decided exactly how i'm playing it yet but i think that that's one of the most interesting plays on the board to me and um, lastly i wasn't going to announce this for a while but since you've given me such a great audience i wanted to just take the opportunity um, what I'm working on behind the scenes is my Substack page, Navigator Media. It's tgmacro at substack.com. And that is going to be my all audio visual free front end of my newsletter where there will be constant financial content coming up. Um, and I'm excited about that. That's going to be up and running within a month's time. It's a little early to announce it. But like I said, since you gave me such a great audience today, which I'm really grateful for, I thought I would. So thank you very much.
0: Hell yeah, man. I can't wait to see that new Substack come out. I'm gonna be on the lookout for that. Thank you. Joey, do you have anything else to add before we wrap up? Anything you got a plug you got coming out?
5: Sure, I'll say um, I think there's, there's a lot of uh, mess in the day-to-day stuff. And I think it is very funny from a historical perspective how much interest there is in individual CPI reports. You know, even as far back as as, uh, 2019, nobody was doing Twitter spaces about uh, the inflation numbers, but I still think it's it's worthwhile to look at that, like, um, bird's eye view of what's going on. And even though I think these numbers are importantly worse than people expected, I think the uh, overall trend hasn't really changed. We know the Fed's going to be doing higher for longer. We know that. Uh, the depth of a possible recession is really going to come down to the effects on the labor market, the effects on employment, uh, and how that shakes out. But uh, I think that's the the core thing to look at going further. How do worse financial conditions translate into worse employment prospects, you know, if that occurs and if that hits a point where it starts to spiral out of control? Um I will say also that this spaces was a lot better than the last one we had uh, because the last one I had a fire alarm about 10 minutes in so I was outside for the entire spaces but I'm very happy to be on uh, and I just plug, I write on Substack twice a week and I've got a piece coming out at the end of today hopefully if I can finish it on excess savings on the amount that uh, Americans stored up at the beginning of the pandemic and the amount that they're spending down now as inflation is biting into people's budgets.
0: Thank you much, Joe, and thank you as always for coming. Last but not least, Cuppy, you got anything to plug? Anything you got coming out in the near future? Maybe uh, maybe some uh, uranium hats? <laughs> I wish we had more hats left.
2: I, mean, <laughs> I think we made the top in uh, uranium for six months with the last batch of hats, so it's probably better we don't uh, have any more.
5: Fair
0: enough. <laughs>
2: Uh, no, I want to plug uh, Adventures in Capitalism is, is my blog. Uh, sign up for updates. I write about once a week. It's free, so you get what I pay, what you pay for. And also uh, Ketum, which is where we tra- uh, track over 25 event-driven uh, strategies. Sign up for a free trial. Uh, it's a one-month free trial. I just don't think you'd be able to trade without it. We're in a real macro world right now, but uh, you know, that'll change. And you know, events really uh, set inflections in motion. In terms of uh, the big thing to take away, I think we're about to see a massive inflection in energy. The SPR cuts off right after the election. Uh, this weekend, they're going to make Xi uh, king for life. And I think all the lockdowns in China are about to cut off. Russian production is in absolute free fall. Uh, OPEC is about to bite with that million barrels. I mean, that hasn't bit yet. You know, that, that's all for November. You just have a lot of things that are about to flip from structurally sort of balanced market to a five million deficit. We've never seen a five million deficit ever. And I don't think people really conceptualize what happens to every q step on the board when oil is 200. And uh, I think it's about to happen really, really fast, especially with all the chart guys out there once the chart looks good. And so I just think that's, that's the thing to, to, to fix it on.
0: Beautiful. Thank you very much, Cuppy. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you once again to every single panelist. Love having you guys here. Love the discourse, the differing opinions, and the agreements. It's nice to see, you know, kind of what some folks have some push and pull on, some things that people agree on. So this will end today's CPI space. Make sure you're following everybody up here on the panel. Stay tuned with them for more information that they'll be putting out on their various blogs, on their various newsletters. We will be back For another Unusual Whales space next week going over the housing market specifically. So be on the lookout on the Unusual Whales Twitter for that announcement for the day and time. For this space, if you came in late or if you missed anything, you didn't miss anything. This will be uploaded later today, tomorrow morning on the Unusual Whales Apple Pod and Spotify. So you can double back, listen in on anything you think you may have missed for now. I've been Nicholas, your friendly neighborhood sonar man, and we'll wrap this up here. Have a great day, everybody. Stay safe out there. Keep an eye on what's in front of you. And thanks again, everybody, for coming. We'll see you next week. Great job, Nick. Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Hey, thanks for having me on.
1: Thanks, guys. Happy trading. Good luck.